Welcome to the Pint-Sized Science Podcast, a new podcast started in collaboration with Science in the News, where a group of graduate students striving to open the lines of communication between scientists and the wider community. My name is Melissa Kant, and I am a graduate student in the physics department at MIT. Today, I have the pleasure of speaking with Professor Lindley Winslow. She's an associate professor of physics at MIT in the Experimental Nuclear and Particle Physics, or NUPACS division. Her research aims to understand the physics of fundamental particles that make up our universe through the development of novel detector technologies, as well as algorithms. She has received many awards for her work, including the L'Oreal Women in Science Fellowship and the 2016 Breakthrough Prize as a part of the Camlin Collaboration. Hi, Lindley. Thank you so much for taking the time to talk to me today. Happy to be here. Um, so would you mind uh, starting us off with giving an overview of the research that you and your group does? So depending on the day of the week, I'm either a nuclear or a particle physicist, um, which just means that my interests are, you know, the effect of the very, very small on cosmology and the formation of the universe. So to that end, the other part of that is I'm an experimental nuclear or particle physicist. So that means I build detectors. And when you're answering these sorts of questions, you're often developing very, very specialized detectors, not general purpose ones like you might've heard about at the Large Hadron Collider that needs to measure a bunch of different things. I'm usually measuring one, maybe two things at one time. Um, what that means though, is that you're really pushing the bounds of what can be measured. Um, and you know, I find it so much fun because you're like, you know, I need this thing to work like this. And you know, you run over to electrical engineering, you run over to chemistry. And, um, and, and so that's sort of the way my work works. <laughs> um, it's, it's very interdisciplinary um, and definitely pulls from different areas of physics itself. And can you tell us uh, about a few projects that you're currently working on? So I work on three flagship experiments. The first one is called CORE which uses tellurium dioxide crystals cooled down to 10 millikelvin. Remember that the temperature of the average universe is three Kelvin. So these crystals are really cold. And at those temperatures, you can actually measure the heat rise due to uh, electrons passing through the crystals. Um, and these electrons would be coming from a rare nuclear decay uh, called neutrino-less double beta decay. So we're often familiar with some nuclei decaying, emitting electrons. Um, some nuclei in order to decay actually need to spit out two electrons at the same time. And we've observed this uh, with neutrinos. So two neutrino double beta decay. Um, what we've never observed is zero neutrino uh, double beta decay. Um, and if this happens, it means that like effectively the neutrino was sort of swallowed within the reaction. Um, and then that would imply that the neutrino is its own particle. For those of us like myself, who are not nuclear or particle physicists, let's take a moment to break down a few of those scientific terms. Let's start with the atom. It's made up of subatomic particles, 
neutral neutrons and positively charged protons at its nucleus, and orbiting this core are negatively charged particles, electrons. The nucleus is held together by strong nuclear forces, but sometimes these forces are too weak to hold the nucleus together, which makes for an unstable atom that wants to spit out some of its components or decay to a stable state. You might have heard of the term radioactivity or radioactive decay. These terms refer to those unstable atoms and the process they're going through to stabilize their nuclei. They can do so in a couple of different ways, one of which is the beta decay. During the beta decay process, a neutron is converted into a proton, an electron, and an antineutrino. Or a proton is converted into a neutron, a positron, and a neutrino. The electron, or the positron, accompanied by its neutrino or antineutrino, is spat out of the nucleus with high energy, but the neutron or proton stays behind in the new, more stable nucleus. By the way, the neutrino is simply another particle. It has very, very little mass and no electric charge. Sometimes, two of these beta decay processes happen at the same time. In this case, you get two beta particles, thus the term double beta decay. So you might ask, well then, wouldn't you get two electrons and two antineutrinos, or two positrons and two neutrinos? You'd be right, except if the neutrino is its own antiparticle. So a neutrino is the same thing as an antineutrino. In this case, the neutrino would annihilate itself, leading to no neutrinos at all. All right, let's go back to our interview with Professor Lindley Winslow. And so for this reason, we've stacked um, you know, a little less than one ton of tellurium dioxide. Tellurium has a particular isotope, tellurium-130, that can do this process. Um, and we sit there and we wait and we hope to see something. And we haven't seen something yet, so we're setting limits. Um, and currently we're setting limits a little bit uh, above 10 to the 25 years. And so to put that in context, of course, the age of the universe is 10 billion years. So as I said before, you know, we're really trying to push the bounds of what can be measured. Um, and so within this work, uh, you know, um, we, we measure some of the slowest processes that have ever been measured in the universe. So that's CORE. That's one cubic meter of tellurium dioxide cooled down to 10 millikelvin. It's the coldest cubic meter in the universe. Um, and that experiment's located in Italy. So then going all the way around to the other side of the world, I work on an experiment called Kamlen Zen. Kamlen Zen is also looking for this process, neutrinoless double beta decay. Um, and instead of using tellurium-130, it's using xenon-136. And so xenon's a gas, and that's nice. It's a very heavy noble gas, so it actually dissolves in things very easily. Um, and so what we've done is we've dissolved the xenon into something called liquid scintillator. Uh, liquid scintillator is some sort of benzene-like stuff. Um, <laughs> and uh, you, we like it because when you know charged particles move through it, they vibrate, that benzene ring vibrates, and it gives off light. And then we can detect that light uh, with photodetectors. And so this is a sphere of, of one kiloton of liquid scintillator with a smaller balloon in the center that's holding um, this uh, 800 kilograms of xenon-136. Um, and so this experiment 
is instrumenting the most, you know, isotope um, that we have ever instrumented. Um, though, you know, Core is almost a ton, you know, only uh, a, a couple hundred kilograms is actually the tellurium-130. So now we actually have 800 kilograms of that xenon-136. So that's very exciting. And so that experiment is currently setting limits at one times 10 to the 26 years. Um, and so that is the, the most stringent limit on neutrino list double beta decay of any experiment. So those are my sort of neutrino experiments and focusing on this question of the if the neutrino is its own antiparticle. Um, and if it is, that could maybe explain why the universe is made out of matter and not antimatter. Uh, a little thing is like, we like the universe being made mostly out of matter that we haven't self-annihilated at some point. Could you tell us a little bit more about that actually? Yes. Um, so, right. So like sort of connecting this back to the big, big picture, um, there's some big questions we have about how the universe, as we know, it came to be. And, you know, as you start studying physics, you come to this idea that matter and antimatter should always be made in equal parts. Um, and though, if you look around you, everything that you know, from, you know, the chair you're sitting on to the birds, to the sun, it's all matter. And so where did all that antimatter go? And, you know, people might ask, well, maybe it's just out there, but if it was out there, then we would see signs of it annihilating and we'd be kind of in this bath of annihilation gammas. And so we know it's really missing. And so what that means for cosmology is that in the early universe, there was sort of a one part in 10 billion um, mismatch between the interaction rate of matter and antimatter. Um, and so we need to find processes that make more matter than antimatter. And so that's what's exciting about neutrinoless double beta decay is fundamentally it makes more matter than antimatter. Um, and so um, that would be, you know, the first time we've really measured a process that can explain that. And now exactly connecting it up to the cosmology is more complicated, um, but it would, it would give us a hint of where to kind of poke. And that's sort of my job is kind of to poke at our theories and kind of find out, you know, where we can pull the string and uh, get to the next step. So that's, that's like the big picture motivation of these. And you can tell I'm an experimentalist because I told you first about how the detectors actually work. <laughs> <laughs> right. Most important part uh, of actually seeing the process. You talked about how large and how heavy these materials were. Why uh, does it require so much of uh, this material? And, and why uh, are these systems, I assume they're quite large, the experimental system. Yeah. Uh, why exactly is that? So when you're measuring uh, a half-life on that, you know, at that length of time, um, you need a lot of opportunities to see it. And so if you think about it, like Avogadro's number, 6.02 times 10 to the 23 is a gigantic number. And so, you know, for, you know, every gram of material, you have 10 to the 26 times 10 to the 23 opportunities to see it. And so that's what we're doing. We're just piling up opportunities to see stuff. And so that's what's sort of setting the scale of these experiments right now. One ton of material would give you about five opportunities per year um, to see this decay at the current lifetimes. Um, and we're trying to make it even better, so. <laughs> right. And so um, from what I can understand, your research seeks to answer some of the most fundamental questions about our universe. And mm -hmm. so what have the bottlenecks been? You know, is it that uh, the technology had not caught up 
to the level where we can build such detectors or had uh, theoretical frameworks uh, not been set up and they're just now coming into focus, what has the bottleneck been? There's a sort of a chicken and the egg problem in physics of like, what questions are interesting to answer now? And there's so many things that we could be looking at. So in fact, uh, the first time the rate for two neutrino double beta decay was calculated was in the mid thirties by Maria Gopert Mayer with early models of the shell model that she went on to win the Nobel prize for. So we knew that this question was out there of whether the neutrino is Majorana or Dirac. And uh, you'll notice uh, that name Majorana, a Torre Majorana, who is one of these you know, mysterious uh, figures of sort of the, the early formation of physics since he just disappeared on a ferry um, one day in the height of his career. Um, but you know, that's, that, that's an aside. Um, so, but it gives you an idea of sort of the age of this problem. But you know, we were trying to figure out just the basics of the standard model of particle physics. So we had bigger, bigger fish to fry, but people were still kind of working on this, like trying to answer like with very simple experiments, very easy or easier experiments to do. Um, and so, you know, you know, there were people kind of working on this in the background, but then you ask the question of when does this, does this problem rise to the level that you want in the case of Quare, you know, 100 people working on it in the case of Cam Lens and 50 people working on it. Um, and the next generation experiment is going to cost, you know, around you know, 50 to $200 million to do. And that's just the cost of enriching the isotope. Um, and so when does it get to that point? And the answer is uh, sometime around 2008, you know, we discovered neutrinos had mass in the first place in 2001, which meant that this process could happen. And so then it became that, you know, it's really possible that we could see this, this process and that this is a fundamental question. And that, you know, theoretically it was interesting. We had the ability to build the experiments. And then as you say, you know, there's been a lot of technology elements of, you know, the first time we built this sort of kiloton scale scintillator experiment, you know, was, um, was the sort of mid, mid 90s turning on in early 2000. And so the technology was there too. Um, and so, uh, so it is sort of that, that, that sort of people kind of always kind of poking at things and doing things at a low level, but then the, the, the problem bubbles up to the point that like, yes, no, this is, this is where we need to be. Um, and this is, you know, something that we need to devote, you know, about a hundred people to, uh, on this particular experiment, we need to do a couple of them. So, you know, a couple hundred people working on this now. Uh, how large is the international community that is after this question? I, I did this calculation once. It's a little hard because there are people on multiple experiments, but it's a little under a thousand people uh, working on this, you know, spread over about five different efforts. Um, and we're kind of, you know, coalescing into three efforts that are going to go forward. Um, and, you know, if you think about it, like, you know, that sounds like a lot of people, but it's like other areas of physics, it's just that people work in smaller groups, but there's still a lot of people working on it. Um, in our field, you know, the experiments, you know, each individual experiment is so expensive to do that, you know, we can't do a thousand of them. You know, we have, you know, people have to decide on one to three to do. Um, we're not to the point where we have to decide on one to do, but we have to decide on kind of one to three to do. That must be really hard trying to pick a certain direction to go in. So how does that process come about? <laughs> 
Um, it's a very organic sort of process, but you know, you know, as physicists, we're trained to really evaluate data, to evaluate technologies. I think that's our fundamental element of our training, you know, regardless of our subspecialty. And you know, it becomes obvious. And there'll be some differing of opinions where, you know, you know, you can say something like the liquid scintillator technology doesn't have very good energy resolution. It's not very good at telling you the exact energy of the decay but it's very good at being very, very big. <laughs> um, and so there's a cost benefit there of being able to instrument a lot of isotope, but not do it as well as something like Core, which is harder to instrument the isotope at 10 millikelvin again. Um, and so, you know, for a long time, people thought the liquid scintillator couldn't work and then someone decided to try it. And so now, you know, you do that on a smaller level and you sort of answer the question and, um, and you, then everyone comes together um, and, you know, you make your arguments uh, for the best case and, you know, the community kind of decides. And it's a really neat process to see it come down. Um, and most of the time it's, you know, really done on the merits of, you know, both the budget available to do it and, you know, for that budget, you know, the results that you can get. Right. And the budget is generally set by, so these things are generally funded by government entities um, yes, is that correct? the Department of Energy uh, Office of Science, the nuclear physics program. Yeah. And so uh, government funding for uh, this field is crucial, right? Mm -hmm. Exactly. And what are the timescales of these projects usually? We, we often sort of um, uh, interleave them so that you're planning the next one as the first one is turning on. The current Core sort of started its planning in earnest in 2008 and turned on in 2016. Um, we've been planning Cupid since about 2014, a little before um, Quarry came on, and it'll turn on in 2025, uh, depending on when the funding comes through. So it takes, you know, the current generation experiment running, see what's working, but you can already start planning, you know, what needs to be done for the next one before even the, the current one is done being built. But right. it is sort of a 10 time stand. Okay, tenure. And uh, when you turn it on, are you expecting something immediately? Are there timescales that you know are going to be necessary to even see first signs? Right. So the first sort of three months of data tell you that the detectors work it. And you usually overcome the previous generation experiment within that first sort of three months. <laughs> You get it to start working and you overcome it. And then within that first six months to a year of data, you kind of get to your ultimate sensitivity. And just because of the statistics, you become background limited and you, you gain in sensitivity, but usually not very quickly. And so usually like a five-year run maximizes what you can get out of the detector. Um, and so depending on, you know, how good you are, these detectors tend to run 24 seven. And so, you know, we had some downtime on Core, so it's going to run, you know, until 2022, something 2023 um, to get that five years of lifetime. So what, what initially got you involved in this? Because um, day to day, it seems like it's hard to see the, the future, but there are such exciting projects out there. How did I get involved in here? It was undergraduate research. That's what got me to this field. So I was actually an undergraduate physics and astronomy major. I was actually the astronomy major first. And it turns out in that astro lab that, you know, most juniors have to do no matter what school they go to, I was really bad at analyzing images and I didn't particularly like it. And, um, 
And then I found out about people doing particle astrophysics and that they were like building these detectors. I'm like, that sounds cool. And so I went and worked in the lab and I'm like, this is cool. This is what I want to do. I want to know about soldering and data analysis. And, you know, I would like to go to Japan and bury things under a mountain. That sounds like fun. <laughs> so, um, so yeah, so it was just kind of the perfect combination of things like I didn't even realize that you would be doing as a physicist. And that I just love like all of the different aspects of my job from, you know, looking at CAD drawings to, um, to managing personnel to, you know, really doing that high level analysis in the day that that final plot shows up. It's just so much fun. You know, for double beta decay, we haven't seen anything yet, but you know, in some of the other experiments I've done, um, we, we actually did see something that was so much fun. Your students must be quite multi-talented. How do you uh, allocate uh, projects on, you know, timescales that are normally so long because a graduate student has a sort of a lifetime of about, let's say six years. Um, how, do you, how do you allocate uh, these projects and what kind of training do you uh, give to your students to be you know, knowledgeable in so many fields? that's the part of the job I like in that you have to really plan your group so that you do have both sort of data in the can to do the analysis on um, a, a project that's being planned so that they can see like how you design the experiment, run simulations and that part of it. Um, and then sort of some R and D done in the lab so that you get that hands on, like, as I said, soldering, running a vacuum pump, that sort of stuff, like that muscle memory of how you do this. Um, and so that's, that's, that's the group that, you know, you need to build. And that's probably, that's why I have quite a few projects in that because of the long time sales, you know, one will be finalizing data taking and that's like the data, but they'll be doing R and D for the next generation or possibly a different experiment. Um, and so uh, uh, there's a little, a little bumping around to, to make that happen. But yes, that's, that, that's a key element of, of making it work. And I really try to make my students do all the aspects of it and get that experience. But what's interesting, of course, students have their own interests. And so, you know, I have one student that loves computer science um, and is doing lots of machine learning and I have to go, you know, make him go plug in some PMTs. And then another student that would just love to spend all day with the dilution refrigerator um, and, you know, poke them to go, like, go do their data analysis. <laughs> right. And so what kind of experiments do you do in the lab, potentially a part of these big collaborations, but are not physically located at, at those uh, locations? There's a variety of things. Um, depending on the project, we will build prototype, uh, sort of some sort of scale model size detectors. We will do R&D on one component of the detector. So maybe the thermometer, the sensor for the crystal. Um, or, you know, looking at the liquid scintillator, the chemistry of the liquid scintillator. And so, you know, that ranges from things that are like, you know, smaller than your hand to things that are, you know, you know, sort of lab size at MIT. Um, and uh, depends a little bit on the stage of the project and what we're up to. So it seems like uh, you need to know uh, both uh, the latest developments in particle physics, in cosmology, in uh, condensed matter, in, uh, I don't know, uh, strongly correlated quantum systems, electrical engineering, all this, all these things. So what kind of, um, what kind of papers do you end up reading? What kind of conferences do you end up going to? 
so I think this is where being, you know, I really enjoy being at MIT and like visiting other places is that like, um, that's the key. You need to meet people. You need to talk to people. And so like, obviously there's only so many hours in a day. So like, you know, I can't go off to a condensed matter conference and that would probably dig down into the weeds too much for me. Um, but you know, you know, that's the conversations you have that, uh, you know, various, you know, department lunches and, you know, colloquium and, uh, you know, and, and friends. <laughs> um, and so you just sort of talk and you keep an eye on the news and, you know, and see kind of how things develop. Um, and then the other aspect of it is, you know, I have this problem and then you go and do the literature search of like, you know, who else might have this same problem? And so a good example of that is like sort of, you know, we have to cool these things down um, and the pulse tubes that do the cool, the initial cooling really make the whole thing vibrate. And you're like, well, I need to do vibration isolation. You know who's really good at vibration isolation? LIGO. So I'm going to go email our friends over on LIGO. And yeah, sure enough, like you send the undergraduate over and they spend an hour with the undergraduate and they come back with this is how they, this is the solution to use Lindley. And I'm like, great. And now I know a whole bunch about gas filters. <laughs> that sounds amazing. So you yeah. often talk to people who don't necessarily do or are, you know, are working on the kind of questions that you're working on, but you find common issues that they have solved uh, yeah, and exactly. implement them. That's amazing. Uh, I just like to switch gears and talk a little bit about um, diversity and inclusion in the physics department at MIT. So physics has historically been a very male dominated field, as you know. And even now women make up about 20% uh, of the physics students and uh, about 15% of the physics faculty at MIT. And that's including adjunct and secondary appointments. So going further than the sheer fact of being a woman professor in physics uh, and being a role model that we as women physics students can look up to. You have also championed diversity and inclusion initiatives at MIT. So one prominent example is the launch of a physics research fellowship uh, aimed at promoting the research that women in physics do at MIT. And for our listeners, I'm also a recipient of this fellowship. So thank you so much. Um, could you talk a little bit about how this started and what the program aims to do and what kind of positive impact it has achieved? A wonderful foundation out in California, the Heising Simons Foundation, um, had interest in um, how do we increase the representation of women in physics? And not only that, they had a specific focus on it because obviously it's a very broad question that you know even extends down to K through 12. They wanted to understand how do we make leaders in physics? And so that helped them really target their, their, their effort or the start of their effort. Um, and so they you know, formed a, a physics and astronomy leadership committee, which I was a member of. And they basically told us, you know, here is, uh, $75,000, go do something and report back to us. And so for me, one of the, you know, um, one of the things that I found sort of maybe transformational to my career, or at the very least found foundational, or uh, one of those things that you can sort of pinpoint as, you know, really put me on this path that led me to being faculty at MIT is the L'Oreal for Women in Science Fellowship, which is a, a fellowship sponsored by L'Oreal, which gives um, 
um, you know, which is across all science. So, you know, biology through physics. Um, and they give postdocs a sort of $60,000 research award to do their research independent of their PI. Um, and both the process of writing that proposal and being encouraged to have my own ideas. And then how do you put together a proposal that matches a budget um, uh, and the resources you have in a timeline that sort of makes sense? Like, how do you put together that story? Um, and, you know, even if I hadn't received the award, that would have been a wonderful activity that I really see how that sort of shapes me going forward. And so when Heising Simon said, Lindley, go forth, do something at MIT, that's really what I thought about. And I sort of wanted to expand it in that, you know, L'Oreal is just for postdocs and is above across the board is I wanted to do it for the undergrads, the grads and the postdocs. And the award amounts, you know, change depending on which level you are at. Um, uh, but I wanted everyone to have that opportunity of how do you put together that proposal and propose for things that can't be done with other pots of money. I mean, that's sort of a key is like, where does money come from? And so that was my motivation behind that. Um, and, you know, so much of our physics education is, is very much book learning, um, maybe a little experimental in this, in this aspect of how do you actually run a research group? It's sort of expected that you would get it by osmosis. And, you know, osmosis works if you are, you know, if you are very, you know, the same as everyone else around you. But if there is something that sort of makes you a little different so that you're not in as close a contact with your group, and even if you're in a wonderful group, you know, that just makes you just not be around as much, that osmosis doesn't work as well. And so that's my underlying theory that of course is, you know, backed up by research of those that are different, you know, struggle to succeed and understand sort of the norms. And so, you know, the more explicit you can be with this is how this works, um, I think the better. And so that, that was my overall motivation. So we ran the program uh, twice with that original seed money um, and gave out more than the three awards I originally intended, I managed to like, they got the experience of your program manager coming back and reducing your award <laughs> so that I could give out more awards, which is an important thing. Um, and uh, yeah, and so I, I believe we've given out between um, eight and nine, I would have to go back and count of these awards. Um, and it's been really neat to see, you know, the work they've sponsored and that, you, that they do, um, that they, they, they have seemed to sort of seed some sort of a, a six, further success in, in the applicants. Um, that said, an important part of doing sort of an intervention like this is then to pause and figure out, um, you know, what worked about the program, what didn't work, and, you know, how much uh, resources and money will it need to go forward and be sustainable? Because so many of these things, you know, like this, you know, you start out with the intentions that this is going to last forever, and they don't necessarily need to, um, nor should they, you know, if they're not effective. And so that's kind of where we are now. Um, and I was beginning to talk, uh, have these conversations uh, with the graduate students, undergraduates and postdocs, but then COVID hit. And so um, I had to put that, that part of my program on pause. Um, but I do think, you know, really trying to pull um, especially women into, you know, explicitly, how does this, this whole enterprise work is really key to increasing the diversity and, and convincing people that they really can do this, that this is not, this is not the hard part of the job. 
Yeah, and personally, I can also uh, speak to the the grant writing part. The grant proposal part has been incredible for me. You know, I hadn't ever written a proposal, and uh, you know, writing it and having the conversations with uh, postdocs and professors on how to um, talk to an audience that's not just in your immediate field and convince people, right, that what you're proposing is both interesting and achievable. Uh, it was incredibly important. So thank you so much for the, um, the opportunity. And even getting the, the uh, sort of comments back and you know, after the fact, that was that was really wonderful. We mentioned that we did peer review, and so we had you know uh, a bunch of volunteers, you know, volunteer to review uh, undergrads, grads, and postdocs. Um, and so that, of course, is very interesting to see. You know, what sparks different colleagues, you know, imagination, um, and you know what makes it strong. What you know, what elements you know weaken a proposal. And, Absolutely. Um, yeah. So that, and that was fun. And it's fun to, you know, have a, a room full of, you know, like-minded win women and some pastries. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> always, always great. Um, so I also have to mention, so I recently found out that you acted as a science advisor for the latest Ghostbusters film. Um, I, that sounds like incredible fun. So can you tell me a little bit about how this came about? Yeah, so so I had been faculty at UCLA for um, for two years before I, I moved back to MIT, um, and there one of my mentors was uh, Professor David Salzberg, who was the um, science advisor for the Big Bang Theory. Um, one of the funny things about being a professor at UCLA is that you do end up getting like random emails from people about like, I have a screenplay, will you talk to me? And so I had actually talked to a couple of screenwriters and most of them were, you know, like sitting at Starbucks writing their screenplay. They weren't, uh, you know, it, it wasn't, you know, a major studio production. Um, but, you know, I was happy to talk to them and, you know, give them ideas about like, you know, what it'd be like, you know, one person wanted to write about like a woman who falls through some wormhole in her physics lab and what would her life like be before she fell through the wormhole? And like, I can, I can tell you about that. Um, so like, so it didn't surprise me when someone had sort of randomly emailed me, you know, you know, we're working on this um, film, you know, we can't, tell you like we here is a fake title for it um but really it's you know a, a woman-centric ghostbusters movie and i'm like would you like to do it and i'm like of course <laughs> um and so what they needed is it was actually uh props and set dressing that needed um help um and so they're like you know we're going to be filming in boston and we need to make you know a bunch of physics labs and can you help us about like what this looks like um and so you know they came in and i gave them a tour of building 26 at mit of like different labs um and at that time i had only been at mit for a few months and we were still cleaning out one of the labs in my in the basement that i had inherited from another professor and you know experimental physicists we collect stuff like, because you never know what's going to be useful. And it was just filled to the brim because they had like cleaned out like some other labs into this lab. And so like literally crates, gigantic wood crates filled with stuff. Um, and they come in and they're like, oh my gosh, all this stuff is awesome. And, um, and they're like, you know, like the director wanted like this like really sort of dirty, gritty physics look. And we thought, you know, we were going to do it like the labs with like an Ant-Man with like a lot of acrylic and, and, but, but your labs are really dirty. And I'm like, I thank you, I think. <laughs> <laughs> and, and then I 
brought them over to building 44 slash the J building um, uh, to Professor Ulrich Becker's lab. And he had been in that lab for forever. Um, and they just, I mean, they loved it. He was like using a coat hanger to hold, sorry, a coat, yeah, a coat, a coat rack to hold his BNC cables. Um, and um, what I loved is if you look in the, um, in the background of, of the, the, the original lab uh, in the film is like they, they, they have that exact coat, a similar coat rack with a bunch of BNC cables on it. <laughs> so they took, <laughs> they took notes. They took pictures. And in fact, um, at that point, I was trying to get rid of those crates of junk. And I was like, you know, this is just about to hit, go out to MIT salvage. Do you want it? And they're like, yes. And so they came in with like, you know, a bunch of guys and took like the three crates away for me. And so cleaned out my lab. So it was like a win-win all around. Symbi um, symbiotic relationship. It was symbiotic. And so like, I mean, they have their sources of other sorts of odds and ends like that. So it was really cool that really some like real MIT um, stuff, shall we call it, uh, and ended up on set. And it was just, it was really a fun experience just to see like how it all comes together and like the amazing talent of like the people that, that put together the, the sets and, you know, make sure the actresses have a wallet that looks like the right, like what a physicist would have for their wallet. <laughs> and uh, this seems to be one of those positions that is never advertised as a, a you know, a, a career uh, path for physicists, right? Being a science advisor on a Ghostbuster movie. Yeah, so I was very, very pregnant at the time with my, um, my, my, my daughter. And so I couldn't actually be on set that much. So I even provided them a postdoc, uh, James Maxwell. And he was uh, working on accelerator stuff. So he had like contributed a lot of very cool looking things. Um, in fact, I think they got like another vacuum tube made to look exactly like his experiment. Oh, <laughs> wow. That's amazing. Yeah, so, so I even delegated. So it ended up actually a lot like running a, a lab. Thank you so much for taking the time to talk to me today. I really appreciate it. Thank you so much.